Just want to do a Scottish jig. Thank you. Before I preach this morning, I want to recognize some students from Presbyterian College and their professor, Rebecca, Dr. Rebecca Davis. Uh, they came up to march uh, yesterday in Washington and have stayed in Richmond and uh, made a commitment to worship with us at First Presbyterian Church, the best church in all of Richmond. <laughs> so we already know you are wise, but you're also very faithful. Uh, Rebecca or Becky, would you raise your hand or just stand? This is a colleague of mine who worked with me at Myers uh, Park in Charlotte and went on to uh, teach. And I'd like for all you students, if you don't mind, to stand up and let us welcome you with an applause this morning. Thank you for what you stood for yesterday and in coming here, what you stand for today. Thank you for being with us. If you're listening online this morning and you've picked up uh, today's sermon, uh, we are celebrating Scottish Heritage Sunday. So we've had bagpipers and Scottish music and hymns and we're celebrating this heritage. The passage this morning is from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Well, the title of the sermon is, You Have to Go Through Scotland to Be a Presbyterian. Is that true? <laughs> Boy, we're divided everywhere as a nation this morning. Well, I mean, many people are here this morning listening online who uh, have no Scottish heritage and weren't raised Presbyterian, and yet they want to be a Presbyterian. They've chosen to be Presbyterian. And uh, so, so do you have to be Scottish to be Presbyterian? In the truest sense of the word, uh, no. And yet, in a sense, in order to be Presbyterian, I'd have to say you've got, we've all got to go through Scotland. One way or the other, we've got to go through it. The Presbyterian Church was founded in Scotland, and thus the kilts and the tartans and the shortbreads and the bagpipes. Scotland is the motherland of the Presbyterian Church, or Kirk, as they call it. Catherine and I have uh, been going back and forth to Scotland since 1999 when we did an exchange in Stirling at the Church of the Holy Rood. We lived there a month. We took our children. We traveled around the country. We've been back many, many times. And uh, when I left the church on that, uh, after that month, I said, Who's, what's not to love about this country? You're the mother country of the Eason family of the McIntosh clan. 
You're the mother country of the Presbyterian Church. You're the mother country of the game of golf. (laughs) Dear to my heart. And you're the mother country of Scotch whiskey, which some tell me tastes really good. One day I may find out for myself. Scotland is a unique little country. From from it has come a lot of good in the world. And when you go there, you find the peace of the people and the villages that surround uh, that country. And a great, great history in Iona and Edinburgh and uh, in in many of the villages in Perth, Perth or Perth as we call it. So I uh, said to Catherine, when we finish this interim uh, in Richmond, I'd like to move to Scotland and do an interim, or they call it a locum. And I'd like to go to Scotland and do a two, three-year um, interim. And she said, oh, you can do that. <laughs> she said, I'll come see you. I think the grandchildren are holding me up. Uh, but needless to say, Scotland is uh, dear to my heart for, for many, many reasons. Our Presbyterian heritage stems there, and that's what I want to bring to life for you this morning. And yet, we go further back than just Scotland, and you don't need to be Scottish or even to go to Scotland, literally, to, to be a Presbyterian. We welcome you, all people who acknowledge Jesus Christ to be the Lord of their life. But our heritage goes back, way back, to the very early church of Jesus Christ with his 12 disciples and then the apostles. That church stayed together until the year 1054. Now that's a long time for there just to be one church, but that was the case. Until the great schism where the Eastern Orthodox Church split off from the Roman Catholic Church for lots of political, economic, and theological reasons, The church divided. Empires were driving the train. And as time passed, the Roman Catholic Church grew in wealth, it grew in political power, but it also grew in corruption. The Catholic Encyclopedia, so this is a good source. This isn't a Protestant encyclopedia talking about the Catholic. The Catholic Encyclopedia itself has this written about this period of time. Political power, material possessions, privileged positions in public life, the defense of ancient historical rights, earthly interests of various kinds were only too often the aim of higher clergy. Corruption crept into the church and there was mistrust by the common people. Heretics, if you disagreed with the church, were burned at the stake. And then in the 16th century, it finally came to a hit. The Roman church was selling indulgences, meaning you could pay cash for an indulgence in order to remove any sin in your life or obstacle to heaven. So you could buy your way to heaven. The sale of those indulgences was actually used to help fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So you can feel the tension and the contrast. Off of the backs of sinful people, indulgences were collected and even required, and then this elaborate church, the most beautiful church in all the world still today, 
was built from the sales of those indulgences. This created a great problem. And a German priest by the name of Martin Luther, you know the name well, a professor of theology, he nailed 95 theses or arguments against indulgences on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517, which is 500 years ago from this October. Now when you nail things on a door in Germany, you're actually posting a a flyer that says there will be a debate here at this church on this topic. So it's not quite as dramatic as it may sound to us. He posted a debate. And if you go to Google and actually Google Luther's 95 thesis and read them, they are very, very boring. (laughs) And you would think, who would die for this? And what is the big deal here? And yet at the core of his argument was questioning the authority of the Pope and the church. That was at the heart. Luther and his followers would debate these issues for several years and the church would finally take a very strong stance against these reformers who the Catholic Church started calling protesters or Protestants. So it's interesting today that we call ourselves Protestants and yet we are no longer protesting. And many of us even don't know what we protested against in the first place. So Protestants include Methodists and Episcopalians and Baptists and Assembly of Gods and everybody who's outside of the Catholic walls is considered a protester or a Protestant. The Catholics drilled down on their issues of Scripture, the Mass, the Virgin Mary and her position, Celibacy and all the sacraments. And Luther was banished as a priest from the church and he went into hiding where he translated the Bible from Latin, which was not the common language of the people, to German, which was. And then the printing press, much like Facebook, came along to say, This is now available to all people. It was a perfect storm for a revolt and a movement. Sometimes the right people are in the right place at the right time with the right stuff when you read your history. And so was true for Martin Luther. People began to read the Bible for themselves. They began to see, what does it say in here versus what do the priest and the pope tell us from the top? But the issues of the Protestant Reformation were more than theological. They were socioeconomic and they were very political. And the movement spread and branched into many different arms. Luther in Germany, the father of it all, his argument was clear. Sola Scriptura, scriptures alone, meaning... We take our guidance and our discipleship in Christ, not from traditions, not from ecclesiastical powers, but we take them from scriptures alone. The scripture began to have the power in the church. And therefore, we learn through scriptures that we are justified through faith in Christ and not through works. 
So you cannot buy your forgiveness with indulgences. And perhaps one of the most powerful themes of the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers, meaning there's not one person who is the advocate for all of us between Christ and ourselves, the need for a priest. We are all in Christ Jesus, therefore we share the priesthood. We are all containers of the Holy Spirit. This is written in Scripture. These theological themes were radical, extremely radical. Zwingli, another reformer, came along and said the Christian life should be simpler. And the statues and the pyramids should be removed from the churches, which they were from the early Catholic churches. They were stripped of the icons. Nothing in the sanctuary should distract you from the worship of God. No stained glass. So you're okay here. (laughs) He called for more simplistic buildings. So the Protestant churches were built very simplistic, very bland And yet today you'll go in some Protestant churches and you can hardly tell them from a Catholic church. And all this was going on. Pay attention. All this was going on while St. Peter's Basilica was being built in Rome. It was almost like a match that was thrown onto the gasoline in the Protestant Reformation. John Calvin was a teenager when Luther was a man driving this train, and he grew up with the Reformation movement spreading through Europe, and Calvin ended up in Geneva. He was a lawyer. He wasn't a priest. So everything had to be logical and rational for John Calvin, and and everything had to make sense. The term the Protestant work ethic came out of John Calvin's work in Geneva where the whole city was run on Christian principles, including the government. And you could be punished for many things in Geneva, including laughing in church. I notice none of you are laughing. Now you are. You go to jail with me. Because why? Because this was, this Protestant movement, this protesting we're doing is very, very serious business. John Knox, who was a Catholic priest and a Scot, so we're getting to Scotland, has a long, very interesting story, even where he was enslaved for a period of time. And he ends up in Geneva and he studies under John Calvin. He's already thinking about the Reformed Reformation, the Protestant movement. He's moving in that direction and Calvin crystallizes that for him. And John Knox returns to Scotland and encourages through his leadership the Scottish Parliament, the government, to establish what he called Presbyterianism and banned and abolished Catholicism in the country of Scotland. There was a time where it was against the law to be a Catholic in that country. The word Presbyterian is interesting. Sometimes at cocktail parties uh, or parties or soccer matches or somewhere where I go, some, um, I don't go to many cocktail parties, but anyway... (laughs) kind of said that before I thought about it, Um, which happens a lot. 
Okay, so I lost my train of thought. I'd, I'd go to these events, and people would say, oh, you're, you're Presbyterian. And I'll say, yeah, I'm Presbyterian. So you believe in predestination. I, I've, I've come to the conclusion that somehow they think that the word Presbyterian is the word predestination. And yet I, I can't preach on predestination today. It's too long of a topic. Interesting, too long of a topic. But we've been identified with that due to Calvin's logical theology. Uh, you can trace it through him. And, and so many people today know nothing about the Presbyterian Church other than they think they know that we're the people, we're the only people in the whole country who believe in predestination. And so then you have to explain, well, most people, most Presbyterians don't even know what predestination means. That's really not at the heart of who we are. There's a bigger, I mean, by that time they've already had another drink and left. The word means presbyter is the root of Presbyterianism, and the word means elder. That's not very exciting, is it? So is it a church governed by elders? But think of this. How many of you are elders in the church right now? Any church, any Presbyterian church, raise your hand if you're an elder. Teaching or ruling elder. Becky, raise your hand. Right. Okay, look at those people. They should all be arrested (laughs) for various reasons. But one reason would be, how could you possibly, in the face of the Catholic Church, proclaim ordination of a layperson who has not dedicated themselves to seminary and been ordained by the Pope and the Church? And yet we Presbyterians claim, through Scotland, we claimed that when we lay hands on you and ordain you to ministry... That you rule and govern the church. Listen, folks, this was radical, 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 radical stuff. If you said, I'm a Presbyterian, you were making a theological and a political statement. I don't adhere to the Catholic Church and its corruption in that day. We are a church governed by elders. Every time we do a a service of ordination, I think how radical this is. This is crazy stuff. These people kneel down and we lay hands on them and they're ordained to, to ministry. That is the heart of being a Presbyterian. When you elect your officers next Sunday, that's at the heart of being a church that is governed by elders. So this was chiseled out Not in Geneva. This was not chiseled out in Germany. This was not chiseled out in Rome. This was chiseled out in Scotland. John Knox, the Scottish Parliament, all of the followers of the movement established our order of government along with the reformed theology of John, Calvin, and Luther. People died for this stuff. This was important. The priesthood of all believers, sola scriptura, sola fide. These were things people were were imprisoned and died and wars were fought over this. And then there was King Henry VIII over in England. I've just got to mention him. Because he really didn't care about the theology. He didn't care about um, simple buildings. Henry wanted to get a divorce. And so he requests, you know the history, he requests from the Pope authority to annul his marriage and it was denied. So what does King Henry do? And he's eccentric. 
he forms his own church. He tears the roof off of 500 Catholic monasteries in England and in his jurisdiction. He allows uh, those buildings to collapse and deteriorate. This man really wanted a divorce. (laughs) And he's very, very mad at the Pope. But he's fighting a different kind of battle than the battles of John Knox, John Calvin, and Martin Luther. Henry formed the Church of England. The church that came to Richmond, Virginia. The Anglican church. The Episcopal church. And because his issues were not so different, they were more uh, political than theological, he kept that church fairly close to Catholicism in terms of its view of the sacraments, in terms of the buildings, in terms of the liturgy, in terms of the prayers, even in terms of the priest. It was a chisel off of the Catholic Church, but Henry owned it. St. Stephen's down the street is Henry VIII's church. That's why we don't go there. I'm just messing with you. I really am. See, the reason I want to laugh about that is not because I disrespect the Episcopalians. I do not. I do not. I laugh about it because I'm laughing at us. We've all forgotten our history. We've all forgotten what it was that drove us to the places where we went. And now some of those things don't matter so much to us. And yet we maintain the traditions we maintain, which is actually fine because it allows for the diversity in the body of Christ. But we're not even sure why we're called Protestants and we're not sure why Episcopalians are Episcopalians and why we're Presbyterians or church run by elders. And yet you have to look in your rear view mirror in order to drive forward. You need to know who you are in this current world and in this current market. The Catholic Church today is... Vastly different from the Catholic Church of the 16th century. So if you're a child or youth here today, we do not hate Catholics. We love Catholics. We admire, respect the Pope. Uh, We are so appreciative of the gifts of the Catholic Church to this world. Pope Francis issued the following statement in light of this 500th anniversary of Martin Luther King, uh, King, Martin Luther's protest. And, and, and Pope Francis wrote this, this is an opportunity, this anniversary, to mend a critical moment of our history by moving beyond the controversies and disagreements that have often prevented us from understanding one another. Those are the words of a pope. That if you went back to the 16th century, there would be no pope who would ever write such words about Protestants. We've come a long way. Here's an interesting thought. We who once protested and called for reform, reform, take the church and form it back to its original intent, reformers. We are now in need of reform ourselves. We have continued as Protestants to wrestle with the authority of the scriptures as we debated in this very city, slavery. Because the Bible is actually very, very pro-slavery. 
by the way. And so should we go against the Bible and abolish slavery? Or should we stand against the United States of America and hold slavery intact? Issues of authority. Issues of protesters. Sola Scriptura. Well, what does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? If you remarry after divorce in the Bible, no loopholes. You're committing adultery. And yet, the church struggled with the issue and came to a place to where we now, in this very church, will marry people who have been divorced. Why? In the name of pastoral care, in the name of knowing that love can be felt and had and shared again in life, in the name of resurrection, that dead things can come back to life. For a vast number of reasons, we've, can we say, evolved from the biblical understanding of the world, and some things have changed, slavery being one, thank God, divorce and remarriage another. But what about this one, the role of women? Yesterday's March. If you read the Bible, it says women should cover their heads, go home and ask, and be quiet in church. Go home and ask your husbands if you have any questions at all, and they will answer it for you. Good luck with that. (laughs) But it's in the Bible. And so if it's in the Bible, why aren't we practicing that? Because we've evolved in our understanding of the role of women. Because we now have ordained women to word and sacrament. Because we have elders, elders who are ordained who are women. We have Sunday school teachers who speak. So what is this authority of the Bible? We Protestants have still been chiseling on it even to the issue of homosexuality and our understanding of sexuality and the recent... Uh, votes and decisions of both our nation and our denomination. And many of us still torn over this. I understand that. I appreciate that. But at the same time, we Protestants struggle with sola scriptura, the authority of scripture. What does this mean? Who's right? Who's wrong? And these battles have cost us friendships. Members of this church who left and went somewhere else because of a position we took. It's cost us uh, much of our unity in the church, not only over the gay issue, but the women's issue and the slavery issue and the remarriage issue, and, and there are many other issues. Splits and divisions that started in 1054 A.D. The Church of Scotland split many times, by the way. The Church of Scotland is actually the Presbyterian Church. That's what it's called, but it's called the Church of Scotland, but it's Presbyterian Church. And it has split many, many times and over many, many issues. But we Presbyterians have clung to this phrase, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, which is reformed and always reforming. Which is to say, the issues change, but the need for reform will always remain with us. We're never finished. We're never perfect. The church is not perfect. And the gap between what God calls us to be and who we are is the gap we move in in our discipleship, heading to something that God has called us for. And yet we've not yet arrived to that place. 
It strikes me that our task today as Christians is not simply to reiterate what our fathers and mothers in Scotland once said. Our task here is not on Scottish Heritage Sunday to be reenactors, like Civil War reenactors, to dress up and in some way reenact something that happened back there. That's not our purpose. We're not guardians of tradition, nor are we curators of, curators of history. Rather, I would argue this, our task today is to do what they did. And that is to open their lives to the work and the reforming work of a living God who reforms us all according to God's will and vision for this time and for this place. Our job is not to revere them in the past, but to emulate them in the present. How would God have us stand in this day and in this place for what issues? What is there worth dying for in our current day? And whatever that is would be worth living for. So you do have to sort of go through Scotland to be a Presbyterian. Because in these days of change and challenge in our nation, it is more important for the church to know who we are. Not just as Americans, but as people who belong to God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that we may proclaim the mighty deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our nation will always need a church like that. Every nation needs a church that is willing to speak the truth, to stand up against all injustice, to be loyal to the Lord our God who is the maker of heaven and earth, the only sovereign king that there will ever be, regardless of whatever sacrifice or cost that brings to us, we are called to be those people. God, in your mercy. Grant us to be that people, here and now, for the sake of your kingdom, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.